The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Politics, 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 politics. Welcome to Politics, Politics, Politics. I am your guest host, Bill Scher. Thank you to Justin Robert Young for letting me hang with you today for this Wednesday, July 27th, 2022 edition. I'll do my best, Justin, not to trash the place while you are gone. A lot of big news breaking on Tuesday, perhaps the biggest in the Washington Post The Justice Department is investigating President Donald Trump's actions as part of its criminal probe of efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. What might that do to the 2024 race? Also on Tuesday, CNN poll finds that only 25% of Democrats want Joe Biden to be the nominee in 2024. We might have two teacher leaders of each party in a bit of a political pickle. We're also on Tuesday, bipartisanship, a cloture vote invoked, no filibuster for the CHIPS bill, investments in semiconductor manufacturing and scientific research to be more competitive with China and the rest of the world. Democrats and Republicans coming together in the Senate. Final passage is expected soon. The House is expected to follow suit. Maybe Washington is working. Maybe democracy is functioning. But what if Donald Trump makes it back in the White House? What if he gets indicted and it doesn't matter? He wins 2024 anyway. What might he do with his regained power? A blockbuster report in Axios says that he is putting together a plan to throttle the nonpartisan civil service, the federal government workers who are not political appointees, who are supposed to give the straight dope. Trump's plan is to kneecap them, strip them of their worker protections, and so the federal bureaucracy can be further politicized. Is that the way to make government work? Is that the way to strengthen our democracy? And where does this notion even come from anyway? I'll tell you, it did not start with Donald Trump. I'm going to give you a taste of that history later on in the show. Also, we'll be talking to the editor-in-chief of the Washington Monthly Paul Glastris, head of that magazine for over 20 years and a former speechwriter for Bill Clinton. We'll be talking about the state of the Biden presidency. I have to note that I also write for the Washington Monthly, so I pulled some strings to get Paul to come on. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Uh, My name is Bill Scher. I do write for the Washington Monthly. I write for Real Clear Politics. I sometimes write for Politico magazine. I've been writing about politics for literally... 20 years, uh, if we count both amateur and professional. 
coming at you from the pragmatic left, and uh, any analysis I give to you today will be in that vein. But as Justin knows, I always try to give it to you straight. This is Politics, Politics, Politics. Back after some of that funky bumper music. This is Bill Sher, guest host today for Politics, 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 subbing in for the superb Justin Robert Young. And I got to tell you, I am not, I have not been someone that has obsessed over every twist and turn of the Trump investigation. I am not a legal analyst. I am a political analyst. And so I generally feel there's only so much insight and value I have to offer when there are revelations about the investigation into January 6th and Trump's attempts to overturn the election results. But it is hard to look away from that Washington Post report that the Justice Department is investigating Donald Trump's actions on and around January 6th. If this does mean that the Justice Department will indict Trump. That is simply an unprecedented event in American history. And unprecedented events are horrible for political analysts and pundits, which is obviously the most important thing we have to talk about right now. There is no way we can give sound projections of what may occur because it has never happened before. You might think that an indictment would be bad for a presidential candidate. Typically, indictments are a bad thing for people running for office. But in this politicized environment, we can't uh, blithely assume that. Perhaps that would unify Republicans around Donald Trump for uh, uh, accusing Biden of acting in a political fashion. And by the same token, maybe this would rally Democrats around Joe Biden. So let me put a pin there. Let's focus on Trump a little bit more for the time being. We'll get to Biden in just, just a little bit. We've already seen some evidence that the Republican electorate, at least a part of it, wants to move on from Trump. Doesn't mean they're becoming moderates. Doesn't mean uh, they're going to embrace you know Larry Hogan or Chris Sununu, relatively moderate governors in the Northeast. Uh, what we're, what we've seen is an appetite for Ron DeSantis, someone who is pugnacious like Donald Trump, but is not Donald Trump, does not have the same baggage as Donald Trump, is not constantly relitigating the past the way Donald Trump is. What's weird about Trump is that you'd think someone who has been a TV star, who kind of knows how narratives work, how celebrity works, you would think he would know that the public wants fresh material. They want plot points. They want progression. They don't want to flog uh, your old hits over and over again. Uh, he has not seemed to... Uh, DeSantis, you know, fights new fights all the time. He gives fresh material to the hungry masses on the right. Uh, so we, we already know that there is an, an unsettled nature in the Republican electorate about where to go from here. Are they are, are they a Trump first party or are they broader than that? And we just don't know if Trump gets indicted. Does, does that rally 
Republicans around their wounded hero? Or does it accelerate the notion that maybe it's time for somebody else? Someone else who can own the libs. Someone else who can uh, make media heads explode. Just in the CNN poll that came out yesterday, uh, as I mentioned, only 25% one, uh, 25% of Democrats want Joe Biden to be the nominee again, per that poll. 44% of Republicans want Donald Trump again. Now, 44 is bigger than 25, but it's hardly a resounding consensus in the Republican Party. And keep in mind, when Donald Trump won the nomination the first time, he had not won the majority of the vote in nearly all of the contests that up to the point when he became the presumptive nominee after the Indiana primary. He was a plurality winner, not a majority winner. But the way these not these contests work, pluralities are good enough to get a majority of the delegates that you need to get the nomination at the convention. So, look, if, if, if he was holding at 44%, and it was a multi-candidate field, not, not against one other person, 44 is probably enough. So I'm hardly arguing that he can't be the nominee again. I'm only noting that it the electorate clearly is not monolithic. The, Repub the Republican base, they may all or mostly like Trump. They may well be happy with what he did over the past four years insofar as he uh, moved the court to the right, cut taxes, made liberals angry. All those things, uh, they, that does not rub the, your average Republican the wrong way. It does. It, that's not quite the same as being uh, a cult follower of Trump. Although obviously those people exist too. The question is how many exist. To what extent is the Republican Party a cult of personality? That is a, a question that has not been adjudicated and only will be adjudicated in the primary. Once the votes get counted, again, assuming Donald Trump runs, which all signs seem to point towards that. Uh, so throwing an indictment into that mix just adds one extra level of uncertainty where this is all going to go. And I'm not going to pretend I know more than I do. Uh, only thing I would say is keep in mind that the Republican Party is a party in flux. It is not, it, 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 it is changed considerably over the past 10 years and arguably is not done changing. So this is sort of a gut check for them if he gets indicted. To what extent do we cling to him? Do we cling to Trump and make this all about him? Or to what extent do we care about some actual policies? Uh, that is an unknown. Uh on the flip side, Joe Biden, also leading an unsettled party. Are we a moderate party? Are we a progressive party? Are we a socialist party? Are we a party that respects institutions? Or are we a party that wants to abolish the filibuster and pack the Supreme Court? These are also questions that, that are not adjudicated as of yet. If you are the incumbent president, if your job approval is below 40%, if only a quarter of your party wants you to be the nominee... Does that mean that you cannot win re-election? 
absolutely not. We know, we know that other presidents have had their rough patches midway through their first terms, sinking below 40%. It happened to Barack Obama. It happened to Bill Clinton. It happened to Ronald Reagan. In all those cases, the economy improved over the course of that first term. And by the time it was re-election time, they all got rehired by the American public for four more years. If Biden wasn't pushing 80, if he wasn't going to be 82 in 2024, it would be a whole lot easier for Democrats to understand that history and stick with Biden because a lot of us are ageist and because uh, Biden's uh, communication skills are not at their peak to be charitable. You see an increased willingness to ponder replacing him or trying to nudge him out the door. Now, uh, when I talk about this, you know, I, I wrote a piece for the Washington Monthly this week, which came out the Biden question from a different different angle. Not so much should he run, but hey, Joe, do you want to run? Do you want a second term? Have you looked at other second terms? They all suck. No one has a good second term. Almost nobody gets in with a cooperative Congress, let alone a trifecta. Uh, you, you know, George Bush had a Republican Congress in 2005. Did he, did he privatize Social Security? No, he did not. There's often a scandal. Iran Contra, Monica Lewinsky. Hurricane Katrina, uh, you try to pass your big ticket items. Obama wanted to pass uh, assault weapons ban, wanted immigration reform, couldn't get that done. Again, George Bush, Social Security. Uh, Ronald Reagan, you know, he got tax reform passed in 1986. What did that do? Undo a bunch of his tax cuts. Uh, so, uh, and he had, had Iran-Contra right, right after that. So, you know, almost, you know, there, there's, there's relative, there's relative badness in the second term, but almost nobody has a really good second term. No one had their greatest legislative achievement in their second term. So why, Joe Biden, would you want to slog through another campaign just to get back in the Oval Office so you can have more painful negotiations with Mitch McConnell? Keep in mind, I mean, we, I don't want to be a pessimist here. I'm generally an optimistic person. Uh, and just because it's hard to do certain things doesn't mean that uh, the stars might align in your way. Uh, I think it's wholly possible, for example, in this midterm, 2022, the Democrats could hold on to the Senate. All the, if, if the polling was accurate today, they would gain seats in the Senate. Probably wouldn't keep the House, but could keep the Senate. 2024, that Senate map for Democrats looks terrible. <laughs> terrible. They, they have three senators right now in Trump won states. Joe Manchin, West Virginia, John Tester, Montana, Sheriff Brad, Ohio. They're all, all three of them are up in 2024. Plus, you got seven more in states that are uh, more light blue. On the Republican side, they don't have anybody. They don't have anyone representing a blue state up re-election in 2024, and, and just a couple in arguably uh, light red states. So it's a very skewed map, and weird things can happen. I mean, look, why is it that Democrats have a pretty good shot at keeping the Senate? Because Republicans keep nominating horrible candidates. So if they keep doing that, 
you know, maybe maybe good things will happen for, for Democrats in 2024. But as we have seen, Democrats can have a trifecta, can control the House and the Senate nominally. It doesn't mean you get to pass whatever the heck you want whenever you want to. You still have to negotiate. You still have a diverse caucus ideologically. Uh Governing is almost always hard, even in the best of circumstances. Uh, so in all likelihood, the window for really uh, ambitious progressive legislation, that window is probably already closed. So does Biden want to be around for another four years of scratching and clawing incremental progress here and there? Uh, now, he might. He, some people, it's hard to walk away. It's always hard to walk away. Let's and let's be real. For an incumbent president to be ousted in a modern presidential primary, it's never happened. Since we began having voters, primary voters, determine, essentially determine who is the nominee. An incumbent president has never been ousted in a primary. The, the two that have done the best are Ted Kennedy against Jimmy Carter in 1980 and Ronald Reagan against Gerald Ford in 1976. In the case of Ford, he wasn't even elected as president. That made him a little bit of a softer target. Carter, and both Ford and Carter, had inflationary economies that gave openings to opponents. Uh, but we're not ousted. Uh before then, you had uh, Harry Truman and Lyndon Johnson. There were a smattering of primaries in 1952 and 1968. There was a New Hampshire primary, and uh, Truman lost the New Hampshire primary to Estes, uh, I, can't, I can't know how to pronounce his last name, uh, Kefauver. Sure, I botched that. Uh, and Lyndon Johnson didn't quite lose, but got humiliated because it was close in New Hampshire to the anti-war candidate Eugene McCarthy. And both Truman and Johnson soon afterwards said, I see the writing on the wall. Time to hang it up. Uh, and in both those cases, Estes and Eugene did not become the nominee because the primary voters didn't determine who the nominee was. It was still the insiders. It was still the party poobahs at the convention, and they didn't reward the insurgents with the nomination. Uh, so if someone wants to run against Joe Biden and not just force him out, but become the nominee themselves, that's never happened. I mean, if if Joe Biden got knocked out and Kamala slid in, like that's what you'd expect. In Truman's case, Truman's VP was in the seventies. Alvin Barkley, he wasn't considered uh, uh, probable, uh, a plausible nominee. In Johnson's case, it was Hubert Humphrey who was the VP. Didn't even run in the primaries, but got the slot anyway. So if you knock out Biden, pretty good chance it's going to be Kamala. Now you might say to me, her numbers are worse than Biden's. She she doesn't pull well against Trump. She doesn't seem to have any capacity to win swing states, to win white working class or white suburban voters. She ran a poor campaign 2020. Uh, why would she get it? Well, I mean, I'm not saying it's a guarantee or anything, but you would need to find a way, whether you're running against Biden himself or running against Kamala, a Democrat would need to find a way to win Southern African-American voters, particularly in South Carolina. Ever since we've had a 
primary schedule where South Carolina is up front in the first four, not only has the uh, person who won there went on to be the nominee, they also do well in the other so-called black belt states in the South, winning the lion's share of the African-American vote, getting a healthy chunk of delegates in the process. When you win these states by large margins, you get a lot more delegates. Uh, that is how Barack Obama did in 2008. So Hillary Clinton did it in 2016. And it's how Joe Biden did it in 2020. The only way you could possibly get the Democratic nomination without winning that vote is if that vote splinters in some way. Uh, you have the closest example uh, is 1988. The 1988 was the first time that there was a Southern heavy Super Tuesday. Uh, and the Democratic leaders at the time did that to try to encourage a more moderate candidate winning, because at that time there were more white Southerners who were Democrats who were more moderate. Uh, it's in Taylor made for Al Gore, who was the moderate Tennessee Southerner. Uh, he won some of those Super Tuesday states, but so did Reverend Jesse Jackson in the states that had heavier African-American uh, electorates. So Gore and Jackson split the South. Mike Dukakis is able to sneak in without getting much Southern support. He's the only guy who has been able to get the nomination without a healthy black vote uh, in the primary. So either someone has to actually take, earn the African-American vote and take it from Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, or they got to get enough of it that undermines Biden or Kamala or somebody else can sneak in there. And it's hard to come up with someone who is poised to do that. Not saying it can't happen. Not saying it's impossible, but you're asking somebody to do something that has never been done before. But could someone try? I, I expect somebody will, especially if Biden's numbers stay where they are. If, if he is below 40, and if he is below 40, chances are Democrats are at least losing the House. And his legislative agenda will be pretty well throttled going forward. Uh, I would think someone would jump in rather quickly. You, you don't want to wait. If, if, you're, if you're trying to do the impossible, you don't want to wait. You want to get in there, get your team together, raise money, raise your profile, uh, do everything you possibly can, because name ID is half the battle. So there's no point trying to do a sneak attack a year down the line. You want to get in early. Try to force Joe out. Try to get a layup on Kamala. Uh, the incentive is there for somebody to jump in first. And once one person jumps in, it's a whole lot easier for others to jump in. The, the risk of going in first is that you get, get yelled at for being divisive. If someone's got the incentive to go first, well, then other people can go in and not get attacked in the same way. And I think there are two people that have that incentive. Uh, I think uh, Gavin Newsom uh, being a white male uh, from Northern California. I don't think he wants to go up against the woman of color from Northern California, Kamala Harris. I don't think he wants to wait four years to do that. He'd rather go up against the old white guy. Uh and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, not only does she have an ideological rationale to not be deferential, she's trying to change the party. She wants to be more socialistic. She doesn't like the fact that Joe Biden is the titular head of the, is the literal head of the party. She also possibly 
does not want Bernie Sanders to be the leader of the socialist faction of the party. She wants him to move along too. Why wait to see what he does? Get in there first. So if one of those two get in there, I think everyone's going to say, hey, the water's warm. And then you got a free-for-all. But, 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 what happens if the Biden administration, through Attorney General Merrick Garland, indicts Donald Trump? Does that rejuvenate the Democratic base in such a way that it benefits Joe Biden. I'm not. I mean, Biden's not going to make this call. I, I I take Biden as word that Merrick Garland is going to decide this on his own. But certainly, people might conflate the two. And this is one of the things. This is not exactly an exact parallel, of course. But the thing that really messed up Ted Kennedy's 1980 primary challenge when he first came in, Carter Carter's numbers were terrible, and there were already trial heats in the polls, Kennedy versus Carter, and Kennedy was, was crushing Carter, like two to one. The Democrats were begging Kennedy to jump in the race. And you might have read that when he came in, he had this interview with uh, CBS's Roger Mudd, and he wasn't sharp, and he couldn't answer the why do you want to run question very well. And that's all true. But even after that happened, he was still polling very, very well against Carter the week after he announced. What changed after that was his response to the Iran hostage crisis. The Iran hostage crisis began the week he announced. And as it quickly became clear it was going to go on for a bit, there was a rally around the flag effect for Jimmy Carter on, on its own accord. But then Kennedy criticized the Shah of Iran. And remember, the Shah of Iran was who just been deposed by the Iranian revolutionaries. And Carter had allowed the Shah to come into America for cancer treatment, which was, you know, bad optics to the eyes of many because it seemed to link uh, the Shah, who was unpopular in Iran, who just got ousted, uh, made him seem like the American puppet that they uh, that the, the revolutionaries uh, considered him to be. Uh, and Kennedy criticized the Shah for his violent regime. He His rhetoric was aligned with the revolutionaries' rhetoric, and that really rubbed the American electorate the wrong way. And a week after that, the polls flipped, and Carter was ahead of Kennedy. Uh, so my point there is, if there is a rally around the flag effect for Biden, not because of a foreign policy reason, but because of the indictment, and maybe, maybe there'll be a foreign policy reason for all we know, that might make it a bit harder for a Democrat to sort of find that opening. I mean, what, what Kennedy wanted was to have inflation be the opening. The economy's terrible. It's Carter's fault. I'll fix it. That might get harder. You know, the, the people that I interact with on social media who don't even like talking about this stuff, who think that if, if if you're in the media like I am, it's all part of big conspiracy. You guys hate Biden. You guys just want to cause division and chaos. You don't care about our democracy. Uh, those folks 
who argue that Biden, that a unified Democratic Party is essential to prevent Trump from taking over the White House and undermine democracy. So don't do things that are going to undermine democratic unity. Uh, if Biden is doing, you know, the administration is doing everything it can to uh, convict Donald Trump, that perhaps supercharges that argument. Biden is doing all he can here. Don't get in his way. And if, you're, and if, you're, if you are getting in his way, I'm going to not look kindly upon you and your candidacy. So all of this, all of this combined is evidence of a lot of uncertainty, uh, a lot of unsettled dynamics within each party. And that makes it very hard, makes it hard for pundits, makes it hard for politicians to anticipate what's going to happen next. So all I can tell you is it's not going to be boring going forward. When we come back, I want to talk a bit more about this CHIPS bill, Semiconductor and Scientific Investment Bill that seems to be on the verge of passage in Congress, and the Trump plan to gut our civil service. Is Washington working, or do we need to blow up Washington? Does Washington work anymore? It does. You know, it does. I'm not going to hedge on that question. It does. Uh, we have seen in the past 18 months a number of occasions where the system has worked the way it is supposed to. Two parties coming together, finding common ground, dealing with tough problems. We saw it with infrastructure last, uh, last summer and fall. We saw it with gun safety this year. Uh, and there's some other bills out there that I that I could mention. There was a the anti hate crimes bill that came together. Uh, there was uh, Ukraine. I mean, we've had a very unified response to uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine throughout the Biden presidency, and it's hardly the case that the two parties automatically come together when it comes to foreign policy. You can look back at how uh, Republicans treated Bill Clinton. Uh, during the uh, Serbia bombing, Democrats uh, turned on Bush over the Iraq war. Uh, but uh, in this case, we've had a lot of bipartisanship when it comes to Ukraine. And now this week, we just saw on Tuesday an initial cloture vote, part of the Senate uh, process, where you be, you take a vote to begin the floor debate. That is one point where a filibuster can occur. You need you need that supermajority of 60 votes to proceed. Well, they got 64. They got 64 for a bill, hundreds of billions of dollars to help American companies manufacture semiconductors, uh, to help better compete with China, to improve the supply chain for national security reasons. So these, these sensitive... Uh, components are manufactured here, plus robust investment in scientific research more broadly. Democrats and Republicans coming together. Mitch McConnell supporting uh, the cloture vote. Uh, and the expectation is the bill will have final passage later this week. And 
uh, and the House will uh, come along as well. I don't want to get ahead of things. Curveballs can always occur, but it does look very good. Uh, and even after this, you know, the, there was a tentative deal struck to revamp the Electoral Count Act. This is the law that uh, governs how the Electoral College votes are counted. Uh, the It's a musty law, and the way it was worded allowed for the Trumpers to try to make mischief with it. Uh, and this is an attempt to try to close off any of those avenues for uh, disingenuous and self-serving interpretations of the law. So that might well pass, too. So we're not necessarily even done with uh, bipartisan legislating uh, in these first two years of the Biden presidency. And this is what Joe Biden ran on. He said flat out that he was going to revitalize the spirit of bipartisanship. And we're going to talk a bit more about this with uh, our, our guest, Paul Glastris. Uh, but it is a reminder to me that Washington can work. Uh, I think it is unfortunate that Biden set expectations so high for what he could accomplish through partisanship. And that did not come to fruition because Joe Manchin did not cooperate. Uh, and so these relatively smaller bills uh, are not getting the same amount of uh, warmth and excitement because to many, they're, they're not as much as they were hoping to get. If expectations were better aligned on the front end of his presidency, you know, if it was all wins and no losses, if it was just if if it was COVID relief that was more bipartisan, and then infrastructure, and then gun safety, and then some executive manufacturing, and there weren't these disappointments along the way, uh, it's not a guarantee Biden would be above water right now. I mean, you probably would still have some degree of inflation to uh, bogging him down, uh, but. I think he'd be in better shape and the perception of the presidency would be in better shape. Uh, but we, we've been in a period for such a long time when, you know, there was bipartisanship under Trump. They had a bipartisan uh, criminal justice reform. Obama had a number of bipartisan things. Almost everything that got on Obama's desk, with the exception of the Affordable Care Act, had at least some Republican votes on it because he needed them. Otherwise, it wouldn't get through the Senate and the 60-vote uh, threshold. Uh, sometimes it was just a few, but it was it was always some. Uh, and never did the two parties want to admit it, take credit for it. They always did kind of gingerly and then start you know, uh, attacking each other. And so our perception of what the, the system can do has been kind of warped. Uh, and look, under Trump, I mean, you, you look at the records of bipartisanship, you know, from Ronald Reagan to H.W. Bush to Bill Clinton to W. Bush to Obama to Trump. The worst on this score is Trump. Trump had the least amount of anybody. I mean, George W. Bush had the Prescription Drug Act, uh, the expansion of prescription drug benefit and Medicare and No Child Left Behind. Even his tax cuts had Democratic votes. Uh and that was a pretty, you know, there were a lot of sharp elbows in the Bush years, but they still got that those sorts of things done. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich, you know, fought like cats and dogs. They even impeached the guy, but there still was a lot of bipartisan stuff that, that got done uh, on his watch. Trump, Trump had very, very little. Trump was pretty, pretty scant. Uh, and now we see 
in this report from Axios came out over the weekend that Trump ha- is is cooking up his plans for 2025 already uh and as always uh vengeance never too far from his mind uh this is what uh, uh axios reported that he has uh th- there was an executive order that he actually he issued in the tail end of his presidency it's known as schedule f very uh tame sounding term uh but uh, schedule f was meant to remove the worker protections for the career civil servants. There are two kinds of civil servants. There's the political appointees and there's the career civil servants. So you've got the career uh, seat, then you, you don't get automatically fired when the new president comes in. You, you stick around administration to administration. And uh, most of the civil service is like that. And that is an innovation from the 19th century, because before then it was the spoil system. Before then, it was all political hacks. And even the, the, the political hacks, they even gave money to the political parties. That was part of the quid pro quo. You, you get a job and you, you chip some into our campaigns. Uh, it was in the later 19th century when the first civil service reforms came in to move away from that system and get people with who had actual expertise, who were actually competent at their jobs, who weren't just there as political favors, so the government could actually work better. And that's only uh, improved over time. Not to say that government is always perfect. Obviously, uh, not every government employee is crackerjack, but it's a heck of a lot better than when back in the spoil system days. Uh, and according to uh, Axios, um, I'm reading verbatim here. Uh, Trump ha- he has endorsed the work of several groups to prime an administration in waiting. Personnel and action plans will be executed in the first 100 days of a second term. Their work could accelerate controversial policy and enforcement changes, but also enable revenge tours against real or perceived enemies and potentially insulate the president and allies from investigation or prosecution. They intend to stack thousands of mid-level staff jobs. Uh, Well-funded groups are already developing lists of candidates selected often for their animus against the system. In line with Trump's long-running obsession with draining the swamp, this includes building extensive databases of people vetted as being committed to Trump and his agenda. Uh, uh, Moving on here, it says, uh, tens of thousands of civil servants who serve in roles deemed to have some influence over policy would be reassigned as Schedule F employees. Upon reassignment, they would lose their employment protections. Uh, Trump, in theory, could fire tens of thousands of career government officials with no recourse for appeals. He could replace them with people he believes are more loyal to him and his American first agenda. Even if Trump did not deploy Schedule F to this extent, the very fact that such power exists could create a significant chilling effect on government employees. Now, you may say to yourself, well, what's the big deal? If, if he wins president wins, they should get to implement their agenda. Why should career officials get in the way of that? Well, you know, we saw how politiza- politization of the bureaucracy can have an effect in the 
Bush administration. Uh, we had uh, climate scientists saying we're not allowed to say that climate change is real. Uh, we had uh, the Medicare actuary threatened with his firing if he gave Congress accurate numbers about what the prescription drug, prescription drug benefit was going to cost. You know, you want people in the system who can give you accurate information free of politics. Then the political appointees can decide that what the policy should be on the basis of the good data. But you don't want the data to be corrupted. The Iraq war, we, 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 know, we know that the intelligence community was trying to give good information to the Bush administration and they didn't want to hear it. <laughs> Uh, and they try to warp uh, the information flow. You you don't want to have your entire federal bureaucracy stocked with political hacks because they will give bad information, which leads to bad decision making. Uh, and the fact that this happened under Bush is a reminder that what Trump is talking about here is not saying that originates with Trump. It's not just about Trump exacting revenge on his personal enemies, although obviously that's a driving force for him. But this is actually a long-standing uh, a policy goal of part of the conservative movement. In fact, on the front end of the Bush administration, there was a very long policy paper issued by the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation is one of the bigger conservative think tanks, and they've moved even closer into uh, Trump's orbit uh, in, in recent years. And the uh, paper, you can still find it online, it's called Taking Charge of Federal Personnel. Uh, and again, they it's written in a way that makes it seem very innocuous. Why shouldn't the presidents get to have of a workforce that does what the president wants them to do. Uh, but they are very dismissive of the so-called public administration model uh, uh, and having it, as, as they say here, this is the Heritage Foundation paper, that the public administration model emphasizes the progressive ideal, a value-free scientific program, scientific can't scare quotes, of government administration based on objective management and policy principles, which is technically administered by neutral career public officials. In such a system, the career officials lead the political appointees, including the president, teaching them the scientific solutions residing within the wisdom of the expert civil service and then engineering the solution into a program of action. I mean, even this, I'd argue, is a biased telling of the idea because as we currently have it, the career officials don't always don't necessarily dictate the policy, but they're able to give good information. Now, if you're scared of where the facts are going to lead you, that's that's on you, buddy. Um, but I would argue that is how we have a well-functioning government. Uh, and we we tell ourselves so often that nothing works. Everything's a mess. Uh, the system's broken. It's all rigged. You might as well burn it all down. What have you got to lose by electing a Donald Trump? It's not like anything's working around here anyway. Let's see what this guy has to offer. 
once you once you get that deep into the cynicism and the nihilism, it can make it easier for very bad actors to uh, to seize power. Uh, so. I think there is value in reminding ourselves, you know what? Things actually work sometimes. Doesn't mean there can't be improvements. Doesn't mean you have to be blind to the mistakes of government. But if we never highlight when it works, you get a distorted impression about the way things are going. As bad as things are in America today, and look, I'm not I'm not trying to sugarcoat what's happening. Uh, obviously, inflation is very bad, uh, and that is has a corrosive effect uh, on people's sense of uh, America's future. But and even though the Biden administration was overly optimistic in saying that inflation was transitory, it's lasted longer than they expected or wanted, it does not mean that inflation can't be fixed. We, we generally know what fixes inflation, high interest rates, which is an unpleasant medicine to take, but uh, we're on our way to administering that medicine right now. Uh, so at some point, inflation will end. It's not the thing that's going to destroy us as a nation. Uh, and so the fact that that is uh, a problem in the moment doesn't mean that the legislation that's been passed in a bipartisan way to solve longer range problems isn't going to have any impact. Uh, it doesn't mean that we passing infrastructure passing semiconductor chip investment, passing gun safety. Look, all these things are not perfect bills. They're not panaceas. Doesn't mean there's more work to do in any, any of these areas, but they all can help. Uh, they all can provide building blocks that can be added to over time if we have the wherewithal to look at what's working and what's not working instead of only focusing on what's not working. Uh, so. Uh, uh, I encourage you uh, to read up more on this whole civil service issue. It's the kind of thing that you know, it's it's not going to be the issue that dominates the 2024 race. I know that. I know we're not going it's, to it's probably not going to be a question in the debates. It's probably not going to be what the campaigns run their ads on. Uh, but it, it, it the difference that those visions uh the, the, the different directions that we could go in. And and keep in mind, uh, maybe Trump's not the nominee. It doesn't mean that Ron DeSantis isn't going to pick up the spade work that's been done on this and, and, and apply it himself because it's not just about Trump. It's something that's been in the conservative uh, bloodstream for several decades now. Uh, so it is a big difference in belief of how government should function if you go back to the, the political debates of the 1880s, this was the hot topic. This was the thing that people were talking about. It has been something that has been debated publicly before, and arguably it should be again, uh, to perhaps to reconnect with our sense of what our government's supposed to be and how, and how it works best. When we come back, we'll be talking to the editor-in-chief of the Washington Monthly, the great uh, progressive an idiosyncratic magazine, chock full of ideas. Uh, Editor-in-Chief Paul Glastris will be talking to us about the state of the Biden presidency. This is Bill Scher, guest hosting 
on politics, politics, politics. Just a little reminder that TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you can support the show. And that $3 supporters get two to three bonus episodes per week, including this week with our guest hosts. Welcome back to Politics, Politics, Politics. I'm your guest host, Bill Scher. Uh, one of the places I write for, the place I write for mostly these days, is the Washington Monthly uh, magazine I've long been a fan of. And I have the great honor of having with us to chat about the Biden presidency is the editor-in-chief of that magazine, editor-in-chief for over 20 years, Paul Glastris. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be on the show. I'm super jealous of your career because you've done two things that I don't even I don't even know how I would ever get to do them. One is to run a magazine and the other was White House speechware. That's the kind of job where I don't even know like what is the path one takes to get to be a White House speechwriter. Well, I got the job of being a speechwriter for President Bill Clinton purely by the merits um, my best friend's brother was the chief speechwriter. <laughs> but you must, I mean, really, must have brought something to the table. Uh, well, it happened. I, I joined the White House in September of uh, 1998 at the height of the Monica Lewinsky uh, scandal. So literally no one else wanted to join the Clinton White House at that moment. That's how I got in. <laughs> What, what what was your what was the speech you're most proud of? Well, no one has heard none, none of your listeners have heard of this speech and it's not noted anywhere. Uh, but I wrote a speech for President Clinton that he delivered in Athens in night in November of 1999 and wrote it from hotel rooms in Istanbul and so forth. And um, for, for, for folks now, you are extraordinarily proud of your own Greek heritage. Correct. Correct. And I got the honor of being, you know, they chose the Greek American to write the speech for the Greeks. And that's kind of smart, right? You you want a speechwriter who has a feel for things. And, you know, I have relatives there and I've traveled there a lot. Anyway, it was all about threats to democracy. This is right in the wake of uh, the Kosovo and Bosnian wars, which I had covered as a journalist. And, uh, you look back on that speech. This is the speech where Bill Clinton gave a non-apology apology for American support for the Greek authoritarian government the, that came about in the late 60s. And it was so hugely successful in Greece because at that time, the Greeks just hated the United States for all kinds of, you know, good and bad reasons. Um and by simply acknowledging, hey, you know, the United States had an, a duty to stand by democracy and we failed, the whole country then said, all right, well, now we'll listen to you. And he went in literally as we were landing in Athens, you could see fires from rioters who had burned central Athens. And by the time he left, he was beloved. So that was just an extraordinary experience of what the right words can do politically. Amazing. Uh, so I really want to get your perspective 
on the Biden presidency. Because I, I feel like for some reason, we as a people seem to have a really hard time with historical memory. And this seems to, when I can tell, extend all the way to the top of this current White House. You, you would think Joe Biden, of all people, would I mean, here's someone who was literally in the Senate during the Carter presidency. Uh, and. But you don't you don't get the feeling that that historical memory is, is infusing his decision making or the decision making of other Democrats in, in, in Washington. Um, do you have a, I mean, there's, there's two ways to, to look at the presidency from the perspective of history. One is this is not nearly as bad as you think it is. You know, we've gone through hard times before. Obviously, the people are are uh, going nuts when they re- when things could very well turn the corner. You know, in a matter of weeks, or uh, or you could say, "How are you making these same mistakes over and over again? Didn't you learn any lessons from the past?" Um, what What's your general take on what's going on? Well, you know, the, you you speak about the Carter presidency, and the, the parallels are kind of interesting, right? Um, in the seventies. Washington, the country, liberalism was hit with a problem that it didn't have tools to deal with. It it had high inflation and high unemployment. That was those two things were not supposed to happen at the same time, according to Keynesian economics. And it really made it very difficult for Jimmy Carter and the policymakers at the time to formulate an answer, right? And it's a little bit similar this time in that that that, uh, uh, you know, the it's it's hard. You know, inflation is not something a president by himself or herself can turn around. And every president is confronted with problems where the public expects the president to switch a dial and things get better. And that's not possible. Donald Trump and and covid, for instance. But the public is open to a president putting forth policies that make sense to them and fighting for them, even if it isn't moving the needle. Again, going back to Trump, Donald Trump said he's going to build a, a magnificent, beautiful wall and have the Mexican government pay for it. And he did no such thing. He built, you know, 500 yards of chain link fence. But the fact that he got out there and said every day, I'm going to build the wall, his supporters loved that. And they didn't really um, penalize him for not achieving that because they knew it was hard. Um, similarly, I, I, I feel like Joe Biden has the policies, right, that over time will solve the inflation problem. Because the inflation problem we have is a combination of high gas prices caused by OPEC and Vladimir Putin, um, you know, and essentially supply chain issues brought about by consolidation of industry, right? Used cars are really expensive right now, not because it wouldn't, the used car companies couldn't buy a bunch of more used cars and get the price down. It's that they have a locked up market and they don't have to buy more used cars. They can just jack up prices. It's that way across the economy. And Joe Biden has policies, probably the most anti-monopoly president in 50 years. 
And he kind of doesn't talk about it. And the, the thing that really is remarkable to me is the extent to which the Biden administration has pretty good policies, not just policies that would work if you tried them, but policies that are enormously popular, right? The public by eight to, you know, seven to one, eight to one, uh, loves the, I believes that corporations are jacking up prices. A lot of, you know, Washington types like you and me, we know these people say, oh, no, 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 it's, it's, you know, it's spending, it's all these, it's more or less the two things that I discussed. And the public totally gets it. Um, yet he, he, he doesn't seem to have the voice. And, it, and, and I have to wonder if the White House Look, I, I, I admire Joe Biden. I think he's a great public servant. I think he was the right person for the Democrats to put up as as their candidate. I think time has shown that he has never been a particularly good public speaker. And um, he uh, is getting to an age where when we see him, he doesn't seem very vigorous. You know, he's an older guy. Um, and. Uh, so I, I feel like the combination, I don't know, I'm not in the White House, but mm-hmm. I feel like when I was in the White House, we were putting President Clinton in front of cameras three times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like they put Joe Biden in front of cameras once every few days mm-hmm. and usually in a very kind of, you know, behind the podium in the in the White House. He's not out there. Right. Like mm-hmm. like perhaps he could be. Um, so anyway, well, I, those are a few a few answers, long answers to your yeah, good question. Uh, good answers. And I certainly think there's, you know, as you point out, Biden specific issues here. But I would argue. And I don't want this to be a podium for uh, for me. <laughs> I want to hear from you. Um, but I feel like. There is a there's there's a there's a intrinsic challenge for a democratic president that maybe a Republican president doesn't have. When you elect a Republican as president, you don't necessarily expect them to do a whole heck of a lot. You're not, you're not, you're not electing a Republican for activist government reasons. Um, You want to be left alone. You want your taxes low. um, uh, And that's about it. Um, Maybe there's a dismantle the thing the Democrats did last time. Right. Right. Or, or maybe there's a foreign policy hawkish reason, not missing the case of Trump. But often you want to be tough against the tough against the Soviets, for example, tough against terrorists. Uh, Democrats usually get in there promising to make your daily life better in some economic way. Uh, and as you state, you might well have policies that will be helpful over time. But it's very, very hard to have a policy that's going to be helpful right now. Uh, And every time, at least in my lifetime, uh, where there's been a Democrat in office, uh, well, I shouldn't say it, because with with Clinton, you had this great economy. So he didn't have the same kind of uh, nitpicking that you had uh, with uh, Obama. He had a a great economy that wasn't, I mean, you'd have to, I think, be pretty cynical to say Bill Clinton's policies had nothing to do with the great economy that he mm-hmm. governed on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 
there are those who like to argue that, but it, you know, he had this moment in the early part of his presidency where he uh, had to come up with a economic plan and it, and it, it was deeply debated within democratic circles in his white house. And he took a chance on, you know, what he did and not a single Republican voted for it. And the economy was not good when that plan happened. And we're talking about the deficit reduction plan. It was a deficit reduction plan. And they had a very strong theory about it, which was, you know, the markets are presuming high deficits and therefore interest rates are high. And, you know, back then we had high interest rates, right? And they really did affect people's mortgages and credit cards. And that if we psych out the bond markets by lowering the deficit, interest rates will go down and we'll get a boom in consumer and business spending. I mean, that literally was the theory. They said that that was the theory. Boom, we got a boom in consumer and business spending. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, I think, hard to argue that the boom that happened, and then, then he did other things later. So, so he was dining out on at least the perception that his policies had led to economic growth. And I, I think Clinton's timing was really good. So he, he comes in on the tail end of a recession. Uh, so things were kind of cycling back upwards anyway. <laughs> but he really extended the recovery really over the course of the whole eight years. That deficit reduction plan, which, which the chief feature was a tax increase. Uh, was done early, 1993. So he, he spends the political capital to do the hard thing right away. And you get to realize the benefit of that. I mean, not, not 1994. 1994 was a horrible midterm right. election for, for Democrats. Uh, but by 96, he was reaping the rewards and it carried into the second term. So he he had their second term issues, but they weren't economic uh, related. Um, Obama comes in on one of the worst economic crises of all time uh, and also passes a big economic package, which does pay off in the long run. It does keep us from having a double dip recession. He is reelected. But the expectations of Obama's agenda were so much higher. You know, Clinton ran on third way. I'm, I'm not going to be a hyper liberal. Uh, we're going to do we're going to do more modest things, more incremental policies. So maybe some deregulation, welfare reform, et cetera. Obama comes in with a promise of transformational change. And when he doesn't literally make everyone's life magically perfect right away, he I mean, you, you expect Republicans to criticize him, but you have Democrats criticizing him. Why? Why isn't there a public option? Why didn't you nationalize the banks? Why can't you fix the climate? Well, why is the Affordable Care, Health Affordable Care Act not implemented right away? Why are we not seeing the benefit of the benefit of this right away? Um, and Biden is having an even harder time because a lot of the big ticket items he wants didn't get passed at all. Uh, and so the complaints: Why aren't you using executive powers? Why aren't you doing? I mean, I mean, you talk about antitrust a lot for good reason, and he is doing things with executive power on antitrust, but it's not such a potent weapon that it it breaks it, it unconsolidates these industries overnight, and no one within his own base is willing to say, "I get it. I get that these things take a few years." Um, so no one seems to accept that the 
that the job of governing is is a long term gig and you only get the complaints that uh, you aren't turning things around right now. So that that to me seems like a just an inherent challenge for a Democratic president that we haven't seen a Democratic president figure out how to manage those expectations properly. I think that is exactly right. And, and it is true of a subset of Democrats. Right. A lot of Democrats are still very much with Joe Biden. Um, you know, they're he's got very low numbers, but he's got low numbers because independents and progressives have kind of given up on him. Um, and, you know, it was the same with 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 uh, Barack Obama. Uh, a lot of base Democratic voters were very happy with Obama. Obama could have probably won a third term if he wanted one. Mm-hmm. But but there is a there is a big chunk of the Democratic Party that is that that wants a new FDR and they want it now. And they especially young people and they look at climate change and and other things and they say we have a moment to waste and anything but the most ambitious programs are are barely enough. And uh, and, you know, the problem with with Biden and we've written you've written a lot about this in the pages of The Washington Monthly. I've written about it is he came in with barely control of the Senate, literally 50, uh, a 50 seat bare majority, you know, some of whom like Joe Manchin, you know, are conservatives. They're not liberals by any stretch of the imagination. They're not even centrists. And um, into that, progressives who at that point had a lot of political muscle, and rightly so, because they'd helped elect the president, said, we want trillions. We want you to manufacture trillions of dollars in social programs, environmental, uh, so forth. And the White House kind of said, "Okay, we'll use this mechanism, reconciliation. And it pretty quickly emerged that they didn't have the votes. And we spent the net the last, really the last, what do you say, a year? It's been a year since we knew we didn't have, the Democrats didn't have the votes for Build Back Better. And we're still negotiating it. And, and, and it was that promise to deliver New Deal-like transformative policies that, you know, Biden felt he had to make those promises. Clinton did not, right? Uh, Obama hinted at him uh, that I really, at this point, probably the number one reason why his approval ratings are so low. I mean, it's inflation and so forth, but it's the Democratic base feeling that that he didn't deliver. How does, of all people, Joe Biden, 36 years in the Senate, ran in the primary as someone who was going to be bipartisan, uh, was there for uh, Obama's difficulties negotiating with Congress, was often the guy to to fix things with 10 negotiations, uh, was there for Clinton's knockdown dragouts with Newt Gingrich, was there for Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter had a big energy policy that got negotiated down and down and down and down. Finally passed, but a much more smaller bill than he wanted, you know, at the, at the tail end of the presidency. Seeing all of this, how does this guy not read the Senate accurately? You know, that is the greatest question 
of the Biden presidency. I, I think you've probably given more thought to this than anyone I know. And I kind of want to know your answer. First. <laughs> um, I, what, well, I'll tell you what I think if you want me to go there. Yes. I, I think I think Joe Biden is a very conflicted person. I think he there there's bipartisan Joe and there's partisan Joe. I mean, w- w- you know, Biden, uh, you you can go read quotes of Joe Biden when he was ta- when he was talking about running in 2008, saying, if I can't, you know, uh, be bipartisan, bring the country together, uh, if I can't get the 60, I, I, I don't want this job. You, you can't do it. Um, so I, I think it's a part of that, that it's it's that is heartfelt. At the same time, there's a there's a there's a Joe that likes to knock heads. You know, Mitch, Mitt Romney wants to lock you up in chains. Uh, I don't know if you remember the 2007 primary debate. There was the CNN YouTube debate where a guy whips out his his uh, AK-47 and says, how are you going to protect my babies? And Joe Biden says, if that's his baby, he needs help. You know, Joe Biden, you know, can bring it when he wants to bring it. Um, and uh, and I he, and he clearly had a lot of people around him saying, you can be the next FDR. You can deliver big. I think that was very, very appealing to him. Uh, and he kind of tried to do both. You know, he, he tried to do the reconciliation. He got an initial reconciliation, but that was very big. But he also led Manchin take the lead and Simon take the lead on infrastructure. So he kind of wants to do both things. And uh, I, I, he, I don't think he found a way to fully square it. Uh, and he's still kind of torn between which which path, which path to take substantially and, and rhetorically. That makes a lot of sense. I guess I would say good for him for being pragmatic and saying, if I can do it in a bipartisan manner, that's how I'll do it. If I can only do it in a partisan manner, that's how I'll do it. I think that what, what I don't understand, and I'd love for you to love your hear your thoughts about it is. why. Did at some point Joe Biden not sit down with um, the progressive leaders in in the House and Senate and say, "We tried it your way. Um, it was a good fight. We'll get nothing if we continue this way. So we're going to let Joe Manchin come in and Kirsten Cinema, and they're going to write the bill." And you're going to say yes. I mean, this should have happened literally a year ago today. I mean, I, I, what, why couldn't I think, I think about I think about that question a little bit differently. Why didn't Joe Biden sit down with Joe Manchin in January of 2021 and say, "I want to do something on climate and health care and tax reform," and you and I both know. It's going to be extraordinarily difficult to get to get 60 on those things, but I still need your vote. How would you do it and start there? Have Joe Manchin write Build Back Better? Well, I, I, mean, I, I could understand why he didn't do that, because he literally would have been stiff arming the progressive part of the go- of his base from the get go. And and, and uh, but at some point. It was clear to anyone with eyes or ability to do basic counting that it was over, that the the reconciliation mechanism wasn't working. Well, I would put this a little bit differently, actually, because this because if I was Joe, so what I would be doing, I, 
because he ran he ran on bipartisanship. It was literally an explicit pledge as a I'm going to revitalize the spirit of bipartisanship. I believe that's an exact quote. Um, why don't you start there in January? It's a new day. The country is asking us to unite. Uh, McConnell, Romney, Susan Collins. What can we do together? Uh, I want to talk to you about COVID relief. I want to talk to you about climate. I want to talk to you about healthcare. I want to talk to you about immigration. Let's see how far we can go together. Joe Manchin, see what I'm doing, Joe? I'm talking to them. I'm, I want to see where we can get 60. And, you, and, and in fact, Joe Manchin even said this. He said this in early February to the Bipartisan Policy Center. He, was, he expressed his discomfort with the way the American Rescue was being put together. He said, let's try to work together. And when we hit a wall there, then we can pivot to reconciliation. So he was signaling what his preferred sequencing was. And it may well be you would have hit the same dry holes that you would hit anyway, but I think the sequencing would have mattered. You could say, Joe, we, we gave it a shot. We showed the public. We really tried here. Now, what would you do on these issues? I think that's a very smart counterfactual, and I love counterfactuals. Um, the, the truth of the matter is, I think the feeling in the White House, certainly my feeling, was you'd better get a big chunk of money out, right? Fast, fast, or we're going to have a recession. And playing months and months of negotiating with Republicans and then hitting the point where you realize they're not going to play, then you have to use the reconciliation would have put off that American rescue plan. What, how big was it? A trillion, two trillion? One, 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 one point nine. One point nine trillion, you know, into the summer, into the fall. I don't think that was. I don't think that was a practical. I think that he needed to get that done. I mean, if what you're talking about is let's spend a few weeks. Yes, you're right. I think that would have been the why looking back, that would have been the wise move. So are you of the view that the 1.9 trillion American rescue plan is not a big driver of the current inflation, that it was almost wholly positive. It kept the economy going. It avoided slipping back into recession. GDP is good. Job growth is good. Uh, And therefore, it was worth doing that in a quick, partisan way, because that is going to pay off for Joe Biden down the line, just like Obama's quick American Recovery Act paid off for him down the line. Or the counterfactual, Susan Collins, her group of, of 10 Republicans came in. I think they came in around 700 billion, if I recall correctly. Um, should he have taken that offer off the top? Should he have maybe negotiated up to around 1 trillion? Done it bipartisan. You still be putting money into the system relatively quickly. And maybe you don't have the same contribute to it to inflation. Would that, would, would that have been a better way to go? Or do you think the rescue plan? really is uh, will be worth it for Biden and Democrats down the line. Mm. Uh, I think we kind of know 
two trillion was more than was needed. Right. So a trillion, trillion and a half. I don't know what the right number would have been, but um, the economy bounced back. I mean, I, yeah, I'm not an economist, but I, I, I do think that I, I don't really think you can blame inflation on an extra trillion dollars or half a trillion dollars in federal spending. Inflation is an international problem. And there's just no possible way that a few hundred billion here or there spent by the United States is why they have 8% inflation in, in Holland, right? It's just not credible to me. Um, but it, it wasn't, it, I don't think we needed 2 trillion to get us to where we got, which is a fiery good economy like within a year. So I think a, a trillion dollar deal would have worked just fine. And the politics of it would have been better for the country, worse for Biden on his left, because Paul Krugman and everybody else would have said, you, you could have gotten two trillion, right? He would have been li living with the arg, you know, with the arc, the what ifs, oh, if only. So I agree with you, um, uh, kind of. <laughs> Let me, I, I think we're running out of time here, but I want to ask you a totally different question. Uh, because okay. again, you've, you you have run a magazine for 20 years. It, it is still in print. You still run a print magazine, although, of course, there's a big web presence for the Washington Monthly. And we're talking to Paul Glass, just editor-in-chief of the Washington Monthly. Um, do you think that magazines of ideas are playing a tangible role in... Uh, the governing of America are they are they are, are they are they is media just like a bunch of stupid hot takes that get people angry and 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 reap clicks for ads uh, or do you see the ideas that are generated uh, in you know higher brow publications like the monthly does it affect people in power do they do they read it do they learn from it do they do they question it do they do they turn into policies? I mean, you've been at this for so long. What's your what's your sense of how the ideas industry is going right now? So, you know, small magazines have always been powerful, right? In it disproportionate to their circulation. You know, when you know Lenin left Russia and went to England, he started a magazine, right, with a few thousand subscribers, and it led to the overthrow of you know the Russian uh, state. Um, Today, right, some of the crack crackpot ideas that John Eastman brought to Donald Trump were articulated in the Claremont Review, which nobody's ever heard the Claremont Review. But conservatives listen to this stuff and liberals listen to the Washington Monthly. And so when and not just liberals, a lot of Republicans read us and the ideas that we're generating. Um, and I've seen it time and time and time, and it's I've been in this for 20 years. The ideas that we write about, and often there's crickets, right? Nobody, you know, Politico doesn't say anything about it, but they find an audience of influential people. You know, we we wrote about antitrust and anti-monopoly beginning in the early aughts and increasingly through the second half of, of uh, 19, the 2010s. And, and we were about the only publication writing about it at all. But, you know, some of our writers then went to the 
the Biden administration, one of them, Lena Khan, now runs the Federal Trade Commission, and they're transforming the economy. Um, so yes, small magazines under the surface are providing the ideas that the that that Politico is going to be writing about a year, two, three years down the line. Fascinating. Uh, Paul Glastris, Editor-in-Chief of the Washington Monthly. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. It's great to be on. Thanks, Bill. Thank you all for listening and letting me, Bill, share. Talk to you on Politics, Politics, Politics. Thanks to Justin Robert Young for letting me sit with you. This is Politics, Politics, Politics. This one was written and hosted by me, Bill Scher, for Dog and Pony Show Audio. The show is edited by Brett Stewart. You can contact the show via email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com, on Twitter at px3tweets, on Twitch, px3live.com. Podcast, px3podcast.com for merchandise, politics, merch. Com. If you want to support us with a one-time donation, you can go to PayPal, paypal.me slash payjury at Venmo, justin-young-20 via cash app, dollar sign, PX3, capital C, cash. Send a check, old-fashioned way, P.O. Box 153-184, Austin, Texas, 787 one five and you can get our bonus content at takepoliticsseriously.com three dollar tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule the ten dollar tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the in the titanic ten dollar tier MC Dredio, Unsafe DB Level, Katie, Amanda, Ye Old Pinball Shop, DP4 Bongo, Meemeister, Catherine, Vigard, Persons Familiar with the Matter, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Edison, Up, Up, Down, Down, Left, Right, Left, Right, BA, Dr. G, Neil of Neils, Charles, Darren, Idris, Arslanian, Bluefront, and the Lenina, DL, Stephen, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana's Shrill Shrieks, Miranda Janelle, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome, Brad, Richard, D. Laser, just another pilot. Middle-aged Mike, who loves Frank, got abducted. Utah, Jimmy Montana, the Jen, A-L-D-L-D-L. Do you really? Chopper, Andrew, Joshua, and Sarah. That will do it for this edition of Politics, Politics, Politics on Wednesday, July 27, 2022. I'm your guest host, Bill Share. Take care. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>
Dog and Pony Show Audio.